Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this privilege to gather as your people around your word and hear what you have to say to us. We pray that you give us hearts and minds that are attentive to your word, that we would understand it and that we would respond in a way that brings you the honour and glory that you deserve. Just pray that you would enable and strengthen me to boldly proclaim your word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, in the year 1955, well before my time, what is now a famous film was released starring James Dean, and the title of that film was Rebel Without a Cause. A narrative in which a group of young people rebel against the authority of their parents and society at large. And it's an ironic title for this film, because for the teenagers involved, they actually do have a cause for rebellion in the form of argumentative, harsh, and neglectful parents. For them, they're acting out, their rebellion is actually a worthy cause. But for those of you who haven't seen the film, perhaps you can identify with being approached by someone like this on the street. They want to ask you to donate to their favorite charity. Or perhaps you might have even had a stranger call your house or come to your door with a similar request. Now, a common statement that these people make after introducing their charity and all the wonderful things that they do is, now, would you like to support this worthy cause? After which it's up to us to apply wisdom, discernment and financial diligence and give them an answer. Yet in today's passage, brothers and sisters, we see a cause that is so marvellous and so compelling that we simply must get on board and support it with everything that we have. And that cause is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection through whom we can have our sins forgiven. A gospel that the Apostle Paul says in the second verse of this letter brings us grace peace and mercy with God the Father and the promise of life and an inheritance in his kingdom. You see, all other causes, brothers and sisters, no matter how worthy they may be, pale in comparison. For the gospel of Jesus is truly an eternally worthy cause. In the previous passage of this letter in chapter 1, Paul has already encouraged Timothy to remember the faith that has been passed down to him through his family and to have confidence in the power of God's spirit within him to proclaim this gospel and fulfill his calling in ministry. And this passage this morning begins with the word so or therefore in other translations, indicating there's a direct linkage from what has been written previously. So let's begin studying these scriptures as we continue from chapter 1, verse 8 of this pastoral letter. And as we do so, there are three main points that we will consider. Firstly, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Second, marvel at the eternal wonder of this gospel. And thirdly, guard the truth of the gospel. Let's begin. Now, I'm sure many of you can remember a time when you've been made to feel shame for something that you have done. 
perhaps at home or at work when you've made a particularly bad mistake. But in Western cultures, we have a particularly hard time grasping the concept of shame in its entirety. You see, what we have is a guilt or innocence view of the world. But Middle Eastern cultures, such as to which the Bible was written into, function as honour and shame cultures. And so perhaps a better synonym for us to understand this notion of shame is the word embarrassment. I can certainly remember on more than one occasion being subject to discipline when I was at primary school. Now, our principal at the time had a wonderfully effective way of punishing children for doing the wrong thing, and this was commonly referred to as being put on a chair. This involved the guilty child being forced to sit on a chair alone outside, facing a brick wall while all the other children enjoyed their recess or lunch break and played and did whatever made them happy. But it was embarrassing for that child sitting on the chair because everyone else who was enjoying their free time could see that they were being punished. And brothers and sisters, this is the same feeling of shame or embarrassment in the text that Paul is urging Timothy not to feel for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. For you see, as we are faithful to the word of God, there will be opposition in this world. There will be people and systems of thought in our world that will do their utmost to make us feel like we are in the wrong for believing in Jesus and obeying his commands. And not only that, they will seek to divide God's church by shaming us through the faithful deeds of our brothers and sisters. The world will see a Christian doing something that they don't like. They may be talking about the need to repent of their sin. They might speak up against modern evils such as abortion. Or they might stand firm and not endorse the rainbow spectrum of lifestyles that contradict God's good and perfect will. There will be people that we know who will see these other Christians around us and say to you, you're not one of those kind of Christians, are you? One of those fundamentalist bigots that hates everybody? It is precisely times like these where we are being commanded to stand firm for the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Not to shrink back and deny our Lord or those who are persecuted in his name. No, brothers and sisters, quite contrary to our natural desire to please everyone around us, no matter what the cost. When it comes to our allegiance to our Lord Jesus Christ, we are being called to share in his suffering and the suffering of our brothers and sisters. Because, like Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul, believing and living in obedience to God's word brings opposition. And yet this should not come as a surprise to the Christian. Listen to the encouraging words of Jesus from John's Gospel. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So brothers and sisters, don't lament or despair when the world hates you because of Jesus. For this in itself is evidence that we belong to him. And listen to that encouragement that we have that that when we remain faithful to his teaching, those who truly belong to him will also come to him through our faithful message. For this is how God calls all to believe and be saved, through gospel preaching and witness in our world. So don't be ashamed of this, brothers and sisters. If necessary, suffer for it. This is actually the first of many times that Paul will introduce the theme of suffering in this letter. And his message is consistent, brothers and sisters. Share in the suffering of Christ and of me, he tells Timothy. For the gospel itself is power. As Paul wrote in his first letter to the cha- of his book to the cha- first letter of his first chapter of his letter to the book of Romans. He writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God who brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Marvel at the eternal wonder of the gospel. Now the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, all letters written by Paul, are commonly referred to as the pastoral letters or epistles because they contain advice specifically in how to pastor and lead God's church. And what we see here in this next verse is an incredibly pastoral and elegant summary of the gospel. One that will strengthen and encourage Timothy in his ministry. Paul just doesn't say to Timothy, listen here son, don't be ashamed of the gospel, get on with the ministry you've been called to, suck it up boy. No, the apostle is far more gentle and loving to his beloved son, Timothy. Don't be ashamed, he tells him. Don't be embarrassed. And I'm going to show you exactly why. And the reason is that the message of the gospel of Jesus has eternal wonder. He wants Timothy to fully comprehend and marvel at the wonder of the gospel, to let it captivate his heart. Hear what he writes concerning this gospel in verse 9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose 
and grace. Through the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells him, God has personally saved us from our sin and set us apart for his glory. The Greek verb here to call is the word kaleo, which quite literally means to call by name. Imagine that, brothers and sisters, the one and only true and awesome God who created the universe and sustains all things has personally called us by name to belong to him. And he has done it through the gospel, the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I have time, which I don't often have these days, I like to listen to podcasts. Uh, For those of you who don't know what a podcast is, it's really just a fancy name for a radio show which has been recorded and put online and you can listen to it whenever. You don't have to be in your car at a certain time of day. In a podcast I was listening to recently, there was a man named Frank Turek who was being interviewed about a book he wrote with his son titled Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favourite Movies Reveal God. Now, in this instance, the phrase, never judge a book by its cover, is certainly true. Because based on that title, I would be the first to cynically assume that the gospel should never be compared to pop culture, to modern films. But after hearing Frank speak to it and reading it myself, I highly recommend it as a great tool to actually use the culture around us to engage and start gospel conversations. It might even be useful in talking to your kids about how the different worldviews contrast the views that we read in Scripture. But in the book, Frank and Zach use the example of the character of Darth Vader from Star Wars as an answer to the question, do bad people go to heaven? Darth Vader, you see, was once a good boy and a good man named Anakin, before he turned to the dark side and committed unspeakable evil deeds over a period of 20 years. And yet the saga ends with his redemption and turning back to the light side, which we see evidence in the last scene of the film where he is standing transfigured in the light next to the great Jedi of old. And so the authors use Darth Vader's example as an analogical answer to that question, do bad people go to heaven? And the answer that they provide is yes, only bad people go to heaven. And what they mean by this is that we are all evildoers in need of redemption. That despite how we think of ourselves, in God's sight, We are rebellious towards him and our sin is repugnant in his eyes and we rightly deserve his judgment. And it is only by God's mercy that we can be accepted into his presence, that we can be redeemed from our sin. As the text here in 2 Timothy states, our salvation is not because of anything that we have done, but because of God's purpose and grace. His plan to show unmerited love and favour 
to forgive his people of their sin and adopt them as his children, to adopt us. This is the wonder of the gospel. And as even more proof of this eternal wonder of the gospel, Paul goes on to give even more insight that this salvation isn't something that was a backup plan for God when we sinned against him. No, the gospel has always been God's plan, as we read from verse 9. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now the phrase here in the text, before the beginning of time, is more literally described in the original Greek as being before times eternal. How marvellous is that, brothers and sisters? There is no discernible start date to God's plan of salvation. And as we'll see, there is no end date. This glorious plan that we read was always through Jesus. God's grace is received at the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, who by his death and resurrection has brought life and immortality to his redeemed people. We see here in 2 Timothy an example in part of what Reformed theology refers to as the golden chain of salvation, of which the most complete explanation is given in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. We read that for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And here in the text of 2 Timothy, we learn something even more profound, even more wonderful concerning this glory that we are to receive. You see, it's already incredible that in Christ we are justified before our great God and we have a promise of eternal life with him. That we have been transformed from being dead in our sins to alive in Christ who has destroyed sin and death on our behalf. But Paul takes it one step further here in how he describes this life, this glory to come. He uses the phrase, life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this word that we've translated as immortality goes far deeper than simply living forever, like an elf in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that will never die of natural causes. No, the word the Apostle Paul here uses is aphasia, which is used both here and elsewhere in the New Testament to mean incorruptibility. You see, brothers and sisters, our eternal life, our glory, will be 
so much that God has not only just forgiven our sin, but he will cleanse us from its destructive power forever. We will not only enjoy the glorious presence of our great and awesome God for all eternity, but we will share in his holy and perfect nature for all eternity as well. Again, how glorious is this, brothers and sisters? This is why the Apostle Paul is able to reiterate to Timothy in verse 12 that there is no reason to be ashamed of this gospel. That is why I am suffering as I am, Paul says. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. You see, Paul's worldview looks past his current suffering, which is terrible, but he looks past his current suffering to the promises of eternal and incorruptible life in Christ. And with this big picture view of eternity, he does not feel the shame that his persecutors want and expect him to feel. Because Paul knows how great and holy and awesome his God is who will glorify him on the day when Christ returns. So marvel at this eternally wonderful and amazing gospel, he tells Timothy. Don't be ashamed of it when you are made to suffer, for this is an eternally worthy cause that you are serving. And this brings us to our last point. Guard the truth of the gospel. Now from verse 13 in this passage, the Apostle Paul outlines another important principle that is crucial as we serve the cause of proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that truth is that we hold fast to the truth of the gospel that we have been taught. Listen to what Paul writes. He tells Timothy, What you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Here and elsewhere, brothers and sisters, in the New Testament, believers are commanded not to stray from biblical teaching. We have only to flip over the page in this letter or to chapter 2 of the Apostle Peter's second letter to see the potential array of devastating consequences that following false teachers and worldviews can have. And if we look around us in the world today, we see a myriad of false teachings leading people astray by false gospels and ultimately leading people to destruction, to eternal hellfire. I wonder if I was to mention the famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Who would know what I'm talking about? At least one, yet two. (laughs) You see, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this poem, Tennyson writes about a charge of a British light cavalry battalion against the Russians in the Crimean War on October 25th, 1854. There were over 600 soldiers who made this charge through what Tennyson described 
as the valley of death towards a Russian artillery battery that was more than well prepared to defend itself. And so the attack was a monumental failure. Half the British soldiers were killed or wounded and the other half barely escaped with their lives. And yet the greatest tragedy of that day is that the, the disaster itself was completely, unav- completely avoidable. You see, this battalion was meant to charge a different location in a different valley where some Turkish guns had been overrun by the Russians. They were meant to be riding casually to another valley where nobody was manning the guns simply to be there to stop the Russians coming back to capture that artillery for themselves. But there was a miscommunication in the chain of command and this group of soldiers were sent to the wrong location on what was ultimately a suicide mission into the valley of death. And brothers and sisters, the dangers of departing from sound doctrine are even greater. You see, there's nothing good or safe about false teaching. A little bit of error is never okay, as we see. For they will only ever lead you away from the true and narrow path that Jesus commands us to walk on. They will lead us to destruction, to the valley of death. However, here in the text, Paul gives his dear son Timothy wonderful practical advice in how to follow this pattern of teaching, this pattern of sound gospel teaching that he has received. He tells Timothy to maintain faith and love in Jesus Christ. For you see, the gospel is not simply a great and wonderful set of doctrines that we live by. No, the gospel is a person, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Continue looking to him in faith, love and adoration, he tells Timothy. For the more we look to him, the more we look to what he has done for us and who he is, the more we allow ourselves to become captivated and transformed by his love for us. And quite naturally, we become attached to Jesus and who he is and want to protect the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, I'm sure most of you who are over the age of 18 will know exactly what this picture is showing. And for the younger members here who haven't voted yet in an election, this is what we call a ballot box. So when you go to vote on election day, it's where you put your papers as you walk out the door. And as someone who has worked on several elections, I've often been tasked with guarding this ballot box making sure that nobody tampers with it, especially the plastic seal that we see here. This seal must remain unbroken until the end of the day, and then it is time to open the box and count the votes. But if the seals are broken before the time is right, then the integrity of everything in that box becomes questionable. The election itself may even be void. 
And brothers and sisters, like this ballot box, the integrity of the gospel itself, this good deposit that we have been entrusted with must be well guarded so that when the time comes to share it with others, its truth and power remains pure. It has the power to save. Because unlike the casual staff worker who guards the ballot box, we have an incredible helper in our task of guarding the gospel. We have here what Paul describes as the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwelling within us. I mean, what more could we possibly need, brothers and sisters, to help us pursue and guard the truth of this eternally worthy cause that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? And now, as we conclude, let us consider some ways in which we can apply this text in our lives, in the lives of God's church. Now, some of you may have noticed that our sermon text goes all the way to the end of verse 18, and yet we haven't yet touched on the last four verses. But we see here in this section where the, the Apostle Paul gives some contemporary examples of how this teaching applies in the world. And as we consider these examples, we can see for ourselves how to apply these scriptures in our life and in the church. Firstly, from verse 15, we take to heart the power of the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Brothers and sisters, do you see from this example the absolute necessity of taking to heart the power of the gospel in our lives? Because like it did for Paul, persecution may well come for us on account of the message. And if we allow ourselves to forget how glorious the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is, if we allow ourselves to become lukewarm to the salvation that we have received, then we too, like these men, run the risk of abandoning the cause of the gospel. And I don't mean specifically here, falling away and losing our faith altogether. That's not what the text is saying because we have other examples of people that did abandon the cause like Mark and then were redeemed and continued to serve and glorify God. But brothers and sisters, abandoning the cause, abandoning our brothers and sisters in ministry can have consequences, particularly in regards to our relationships. But it is avoidable if we truly take to heart the power of the gospel and be willing to suffer for its cause when the time comes. Second point from verse 16 and 17 is that we refresh each other. Read what Paul says about Onesiphorus. He reads, May the Lord show mercy to the house of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. There's quite a contrast here, isn't there, between Onesiphorus on one hand and Phygelus and Hobogenes on the other. 
But look how encouraging Onesiphorus is to the Apostle Paul. He sees Paul serving the cause of the gospel, suffering for the cause of the gospel, and he is not ashamed of him. In fact, he does everything he can to serve alongside Paul in his ministry. He refreshes Paul, as the text says. And I'm sure we all know of such people, those around us who are so devoted to Jesus and the ministry of the gospel that they are willing to do whatever they can to serve the Lord and his witnesses, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they have their hearts captivated by the grace and mercy that they have received. And so they pour out their own lives in love and service to others. Brothers and sisters, we should all aspire to imitate such people like Onesiphorus, like those who encourage you and refresh you in your ministry. We refresh and encourage one another in the cause of the gospel. And lastly, from verse 18, we stay on course for eternity. Read what Paul writes again concerning Onesiphorus. He writes, May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how in many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now from what Paul has written here about this man Onesiphorus, it's quite clear that he's probably died at this point in time. Then there's no other mention of him in the New Testament except this letter. And in in the end of chapter 4, only his household is mentioned. And yet, we see such a beautiful statement from the Apostle Paul about how confident he is that Onesiphorus will receive mercy from God on the day that Christ returns. For he was a man who had truly taken to heart the power of the gospel. It had shaped his life and worldview. He, like the Apostle Paul, was willing to suffer, to serve, and even die for the cause of hearing, seeing people hear and believe the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, like Paul, didn't shrink back during persecution or abandon those he served alongside for the cause of the gospel. All because he had his heart set on eternity. And we should do likewise. We should give all that we have for this eternally worthy cause that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word and for the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would strengthen and equip us as we serve you and proclaim your word to the nations. Pray you would help us to marvel at the wonder of this gospel and the promises that you have so graciously bestowed upon us in Christ. Help us when the time comes not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to suffer and continue to love and serve you, Lord, and serve alongside our brothers and sisters. Help us to be diligent in guarding the truth that was handed down to us so that when the time comes, the power of the gospel will remain pure and have the power to save those who hear. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be people that would refresh one another, that would serve alongside one another as we all strive together for this eternally worthy cause that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in all these things that we will glorify your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.